Welcome to the third Frontline Gastroenterology podcast related to the Twitter debates on Tuesday the 11th of November 2014 entitled Frontline Hepatology, Alcohol, Our Favourite Drug and Everyone's Problem. My name is Dr. Philip Smith, I'm the trainee editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and a gastroenterology registrar in London and I extend a very warm welcome to Professor Sir Ian Gilmore. Professor Ian Gilmore is an honorary consultant physician at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital and holds an honorary chair at the University of Liverpool. He is the past president of, of the Royal College of Physicians and also the British Society of Gastroenterology. Amongst his many other roles, he also chairs the UK Alcohol Health Alliance in which relevant agencies work together in a coherent and focused framework. He has also been appointed uh, as chair of the European Alcohol and Health Forum Science Group and is a member of the Climate and Health Council. He recently became president of Alcohol Concern and in 2010 was knighted by the Queen in the, in the Queen's Birthday Honours List and is deputy lieutenant of Merseyside. Serene, we're really grateful um, for you doing the podcast to accompany your excellent Twitter debate. In that Twitter debate, you included some um, some excellent teaching slides, and I'm very grateful for you to allow these slides to appear alongside this podcast on the website. Thank you very much for that. As your topic uh, uh, and the title suggests, this is this is a re- a really important subject. But I wanted to to really ask you as my, one of my first questions: Why you say that alcohol is our favourite drug, and and really why is it everybody's problem? Okay, Phil. Well- First of all, thank you for asking me. I found the Twitter debate fascinating and it extended my technical knowledge considerably. I like to use the phrase our favorite drug because it really reminds us that alcohol is a drug. It happens to be legal, unlike uh, many other drugs in society, but it is a chemical. It does have addictive potential. And I, and I prefer to talk about you know, alcohol and other drugs. You know, it's, it's very common for uh, parents to be petrified that their children might be using illicit drugs, smoking cannabis, taking cocaine, but they don't seem to get it that children are actually much more liable to come to harm from alcohol than they are from drugs. In fact, the harm from alcohol is a different order of magnitude to uh, that from drugs. Everyone's problem, I think that really phrase I use partly to emphasize the scale of the problem, uh, but also because we've also got infinite capacity as individuals to pretend that it's not our problem, it's somebody else. We feel, well, we may be drinking a little bit much, but we can scale back when we have to. But this is really, it's all about those nasty people making noise in the city on on a Saturday night, not us. So we've we've all been very good at kind of saying this is somebody else's problem. But the scale is so large, we all have to get involved. I mean, it costs the NHS uh, £3 billion a year. And that's actually small compared to the the costs for crime and disorder. And that's small again compared to the cost of of, of lost productivity, absenteeism from work and and indeed presenteeism when uh, people may be at work but are not functioning because of the the night before. I think I also use the phrase everyone's problem because it reminds us that alcohol like tobacco doesn't just affect the user. It damages third parties around that user. And it was very interesting to me that um, it was passive smoking that really swung the general public behind uh, a ban on smoking in public places, the idea that somebody's secondhand smoke was damaging them. 
which is true, but in fact the damage to, to bystanders is hugely greater from alcohol, particularly, for example, uh, at its most basic form is the damage to the unborn child and fetal alcohol syndrome, but then the children of dependent parents, uh, uh, innocent victims of, of accidents, road traffic accidents and the like. So I don't think we've made enough of the of of this in in trying to get the the public on our side because if you you know if you stop someone on a on a Friday night and say for example would you like to pay more for a, your bottle of wine this weekend they're not going to say yes uh, but if but if the um, question is framed around the harm that that community is seeing from alcohol the fact that streets could be safer at, at night the fact that children could go out um, uh, more safely and so on then I think the general public communities are much more likely to, to, to accept some of the evidence-based policies that we might go on to discuss later Yes, I, I mean it, it's, it sounds very clear that this is, I mean alcohol is, is a major problem I mean, in, uh, in society and, but the question is is that what, what do we actually do about it because you, you'd assume that this would be something that the government um, in the UK and around the world, they'd be, you know, would be their, one of their number one problems to, to deal with. But, uh, but what can we do about it? We can tackle it at two levels, and, and I think we're, we're doing uh, not very well in the UK at, at both of these. One is tackling um, prevention, the public health approaches to try to get us much less uh, driven by alcohol in society. And the other approach is to, is to spot individuals earlier who are running into problems and, and get them into, into effective support and treatment. In terms of, of prevention, uh, we've known for decade, decades where the evidence lies. We know that the main drivers of how much a community drinks and, and how much harm they see are basically the price of alcohol, the availability of alcohol and the marketing. And it's exactly the same with cigarettes. If you, if you plot uh, cigarette use against the, 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 the price of cigarettes, you'll see the same inverse relationship. You put the price of alcohol up, consumption comes down, and vice versa. And, of course, we know that um, alcohol has become much cheaper in real terms over the last 30, 40 years, uh, particularly in the in the um, off trade and off licenses supermarkets as as compared to um, buying a, a pint of beer in in a, in a pub, and indeed uh, people often say this is nothing to do with price or availability. This is we need to change our culture, but price has changed the culture in the UK because if you go back 20 years ago, most alcohol was consumed in bars, pubs, uh, restaurants. Now. The vast majority of all preparations, except beer, um, this 80% is consumed uh, at home. Uh, and for beer, it's about 50-50. But if you go back 20 years, there was 10 pints of beer consumed in a pub for every one pint at home. So the availability of cheap supermarket drink has changed our culture. And, and as, you, as you well know, this isn't just about drinking at home and staying at home. It's often drinking at home and then going out. Um, and just keeping topped up with the more expensive alcohol, that so-called front-loading or, or pre-loading. And indeed, I learned a new term recently, which is when, when youngsters go out having front-loaded, um, they then, during the evening, will nip into an off-license to get a, a bit more cheap alcohol, so-called side-loading. But the price, price is, the num is the number one. But we do know that things like availability do drive consumption, and in 2004, the 
the Tony Blair government liberalised um, uh, regulations around availability, extending licensing hours, and that hasn't been helpful. And then marketing is it's absolutely huge. And, uh, of course, we believe that one reason that we don't get evidence-based policies in this country is that the drinks industry is incredibly powerful and has enormous access to, to our, 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 our lawmakers. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's quite a complex issue, and I think it, um, in terms of the, the lobbying uh, potential, I think that doesn't necessarily just uh, extend to alcohol, but other areas in, in politics as well. But um, coming back to gastroenterology doctors and, um, and medics and surgeons, really, we, we often... We see um, people arriving in hospital often as a result of alcohol uh, from varicell bleeding all the way through to pancreatitis. So what can a practicing frontline gastroenterologist do about this problem? I mean, is there any way that um, people on the shop floor can actually help with the problem of alcohol? Well, I think frontline uh, gastroenterologists are already in the firing line and not just with those GI diseases that are caused by alcohol, but very often patients admitted with a non-specific diagnosis where there's alcohol in it are often triaged to, to gastroenterology services. So I think by default, many gastroenterologists have been getting more uh, involved. And I, I think there's going to be several levels. There's the issue of managing individuals. And I think we really do need a, a culture change in in hospitals, because at the moment there's a very negative attitude towards people who are, whose problems are, are alcohol-related. Um, you know, it's their own fault. Uh, whereas people don't have the same attitude necessarily to somebody who gets lung cancer or chronic bronchitis from smoking. And of course, many of the people who come in with pancreatitis and varices have a true addiction to alcohol. So I think they often get get poor care in hospitals because it's considered to be their fault. I think also a lot of um, clinical staff think that, that these patients are no hopeless and there's nothing you can do about it. But in fact, the treatments we have for alcohol dependence right across the scale, just at one end from those who are beginning to drink a bit more than they should and uh, right through to those with severe dependence, the evidence is that treatment is highly cost-effective. So we really need to be identifying individuals uh, at risk of drinking too much uh, get away from the from you know patching up the the broken arm when they've fallen over and actually getting into why they fell over in the first place. We know that brief interventions, brief advice, can, uh, just opening up an open-ended conversation to get people to think about the drinking is highly effective. Uh, not just telling people to stop drinking, but engaging them in a in in, in a discussion that allows them to think about the consequences of alcohol in their life. There are medications that, that actually are evidence-based and quite quite useful, uh, things like acamprosate, naloxone, naltrexone, drugs that haven't been, uh, aren't used as much by gastroenterologists as perhaps they should. But perhaps uh, the most important thing that gastroenterologists could, can do is to get involved in hospital policy, setting up hospital-wide alcohol care teams. Gastroenterologists have often been at the fore of this in the British Society of Gastroenterology, um, uh, has you know, has something on the on the um, NHS England website showing how this can be done and how it's cost effective. This requires a champion, uh, preferably a consultant, but then a, some specialist nurses who help to uh, raise the profile of the issue, help to see individual patients, but also help to move the culture forward, so that all staff become more comfortable 
in helping these people to access proper services when their primary problem is, is patched up. Uh, it's, very, it's very interesting, Sreen, because uh, through, just through this podcast, we've talked about culture changes in, in different settings uh, and um, related not just to the public's uh, attitude to um, to alcohol, the politicians, but also in the healthcare system. So I think that's really interesting. But where are we going with, with this? I mean, what does the future hold in terms of the, the problem related to alcohol? Uh, particularly in the UK, but not but not just exclusively in the UK, around the world, because I assume there's, there's problems elsewhere as well. Yes, I, I, I think it's fair to say that apart from in certain religious uh, cultures, uh, alcohol is here to stay. It's going to remain legal. And it's not been one of our aims to eradicate alcohol, just to get, the, get us as a nation and as a society to back off a little bit and, and to develop a more healthy relationship with alcohol where it isn't considered heroic to go out every um, you know every weekend night and get absolutely drunk so it is here to stay but consumption and harm has waxed and waned over the years you look back into the 17th and 18th century and as, as government brought in various gin acts um, you know things got better and then the acts were repealed and things got worse again so we just need to keep up our pressure it is a huge global issue Alcohol is the biggest single factor for men dying before the age of 60 in the world and for disability-adjusted life years lost. So it's actually bigger than smoking because it tends to damage people younger. Obviously, smoking has a bigger total burden, but for killing people young, and indeed our gastroenterologists will be aware that their patients with pancreatitis and cirrhosis are often in their 40s and 50s rather than their 70s and 80s. Globally, it's interesting because um, there are uh, 25% of alcohol consumed worldwide is never recorded anywhere. So there's still areas of the world where huge amounts of, of spirits are distilled um, illicitly. Uh, but also, we're now getting a, a narrowing of, of um, drinking cultures as we have these big multinational companies and we've got more disposable income in places like China. India, you'll find in bars in those cities, people are now sipping designer beers rather than, than drinking illicit uh, coconut spirits. The traditional Mediterranean countries that prided themselves in not having our binge drinking problems are now seeing their children, their, young, their youngsters going out and binge drinking, mimicking what goes on in Northern Europe. So the problems are worldwide, and I think we just, we're not going to eradicate them, but we have to be aware of where the evidence is and try and help our uh, politicians uh, make the right right decisions. I think there's lots of lot of room left for research. If you look at something like alcohol is responsible for 80% of deaths from cirrhosis, but it gets less than 10% of the research funding. It's all the money goes into hepatitis C and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So we definitely need more research. There almost certainly will be advances in. Firstly, why people become dependent, and secondly, managing the organ damage like 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 cirrhosis. Yes, I mean it. It sounds like there's a there's a huge scope for um, for research in this area, and um, and also a huge scope for change as well. Um, thank you very much, Sirian, and that that was fantastic. And thank you once again for your great support with the Frontline Gastroenterology Twitter debate and with this podcast. We are really grateful, and I'm sure the listener. Listeners uh, will find this very interesting and helpful. Um, 
The slides from the Twitter debate that Serena has produced will be available on a link next to this podcast. The next Frontline Gastroenterology Twitter debate is actually our Christmas special, which is um, on Sunday the 21st of December at 12 noon GMT time. And that's with the Nobel Laureate um, Professor Barry Marshall and the Editor-in-Chief of GUT, Prof. Imad El-Omar. That's entitled Frontline Research, The Highs and Lows of Academic Life, The Basics, The Barriers and The Breakthroughs. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you very much and thank you, Serene, again. My pleasure.